The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the first chapter. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the Gospel of the Lord. In the holy name of Jesus, amen. False comfort isn't false because it fails to comfort. It's false because it's founded on a lie. False comfort might help you feel better, but it can do nothing to make you better. When it comes to giving comfort, we are generally most concerned with making people feel better. We'd like to lessen the pain, though often we aim for that simply because it's uncomfortable for us to be around someone who is suffering. I'm just not sure what to say, we think. And in our uncertainty, we come face to face with the limits of our ability to comfort. On our own, in cases of tragedy or loss or guilt, the best we can hope for is to help someone feel better. But we can do nothing to make them better. The fact that we so mightily struggle to give comfort is a reflection of our limitations. That doesn't stop us, however, from saying or believing false comforts. You know the range of platitudes that you cringe to hear, especially when you find yourself saying them. A couple years ago, I preached about a woman named Kate Bowler who was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer at the age 35. As a historian of Christianity, she wondered about the shallowness of the prosperity gospel, which suggests that blessedness is proportional to success in life. If, if that's true, though, she asked, what is a person to make of a cancer diagnosis? Now, almost two years later, she's still undergoing treatment and has continued to reflect thoughtfully on her life and the blessedness of suffering. She wrote a book that will be available next year. I don't know what she says in the book, but the title I find very provocative. Everything happens for a reason, and other lies I've loved. 
Now, on the one hand, it's true that everything happens for a reason, but what's implicit in that bit of advice is the idea that it's a reason you and I would find agreeable. That if only we knew the reason, we'd happily say, of course, bring on the suffering. But the thing about real suffering is this. It's not happy. And it's not worth any reason you could imagine. Everything happens for a reason is a lovable lie. An attractive false comfort because it helps us feel better, at least for a moment, though it does nothing to make us better. False comfort cannot make you better because it never really acknowledges the problem. It's founded on the premise that things aren't really as bad as you think they are. That if you just had a bit of perspective, you'd see that there's nothing to be so upset about. But especially when it's guilt or death on the table, you can see how that kind of comfort falls through. As you read the Bible, you discover that false comfort is endemic among God's people. It's one of our besetting sins, even today, a love of false comfort. This is what the Apostle Peter was addressing in his epistle. He knows after Jesus has died and risen and ascended, he knows what the scoffers will say. Where is the promise of his second coming? He who will supposedly judge the living and the dead. The world is spinning now just as it always has. From the beginning of creation, the sun rises and sets predictably. Don't worry about how you live. There's no need to watch for that harrowing day of the Lord. But that's a false comfort. It's a comfort that assuages guilty consciences by outright denying that there will be a reckoning. Likewise, you heard Isaiah preaching comfort, but his is not the only voice crying in the wilderness. False prophets and foreign kings were abundant who promised that Israel could rest securely, that they could trust in a peace forged at the altars of idols and in mere lip service in God's holy temple. But that was a false comfort too. It was a comfort that forgot God's loving kindness and His faithfulness and ignored God's covenant and most of all underestimated God's fierce jealousy. Of course, false comfort has its roots in the garden. As the serpent whispered the lie to the woman, you will not surely die. Another false comfort which overlooked the fact that God is God and we are his creatures that indulged the pride of Adam and Eve and so began humanity's love affair with false comfort. The great news of this season, this Advent season, however, is that there is such a thing as true comfort. And here's how it works. It faces the reality of suffering and doesn't explain it away. It doesn't minimize it or try to put it in perspective. It doesn't offer company to misery. Instead, it calls it what it is. Sin is sin, and death is death. And tragedy, pain, loss, and grief 
are evil. Period. No platitudes, no lies, just the facts. But then, true comfort goes to work. Not aiming to help you feel better, but setting out to make you better. True comfort delivers a promise of redemption. That's the comfort of the gospel, even in the book of Genesis. Man and woman are cursed as they are cast from the garden, and on account of them, the serpent will strike Christ's heel as he endures the shame of the cross. But by that very same stroke, Christ will crush the serpent's head. And in Isaiah, you heard it, all flesh is grass. The grass withers and the flower fades as the breath of the Lord blows upon it. But the word of our God, that tender word of pardon for sin and the end of our warfare, that word will stand forever. And then in Peter, the day of the Lord will come like a thief at the heavens and will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn and the works that are done on the earth will be exposed. But entering that day, you and I have a promise. A promise from him who has already proven faithful, who has already fulfilled the law and the prophets, who created the heavens and the earth and has begun to restore them. And so even now as we languish, Peter says, we wait for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell. You can find lots of advice on what to say to people in order to comfort them. I think it's generally pretty sound advice to try not to talk about yourself and to spend more time listening. But most important, I think, is acknowledging that unless you're willing to look suffering squarely in the eyes, unless you're willing to name our enemies, sin, death, and the evil one, the most you can do is help someone feel better while leaving them quite unchanged. It's beyond our natural powers to deliver true comfort because we cannot make the kinds of promises that are needed for redemption. We cannot say, I will wipe away every tear from your eyes. For that we need something more. For that we need someone more, flesh and blood, who can deliver on God's promises. We need someone who grasps the depth of our suffering and is willing even to climb into our graves. We who must die demand a miracle. So says the poet W.H. Auden as he contemplates the mystery and the hope of Advent. Nothing can save us that is possible. We who must die demand a miracle. In the holy name of Jesus, amen.